Hello, welcome to the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Patricia Vasconcelos. This podcast is an educational program by the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents in the USA, AFPC USA. On today's program, a trade talk with Kate Rockwell, former director for the World Trade Organization, WTO, and a senior research fellow at the Heinrich Foundation. In this episode, Rockwell analyzes how much global trade patterns have shifted along the years. Kate Rockwell is a global fellow at the Wilson Center and, in his former role as director of the WTO's Media and External Relations Division, he worked closely with the Director General and his office to reflect the objectives and activities of the WTO. Kate received his Master's in Business Administration for George Washington University and his Bachelor's Degree in History and Political Science for Tufts University. This episode is produced in partnership with Heinrich Foundation. The AFPC USA is solely responsible for the content of this episode. Patricia, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about trade. Um, you were the director of the WTO for almost three decades, have an extensive knowledge and experience to analyze some topics that we are going to talk here today. A headline a couple of days ago, um, it was at the New York Times, uh, which says, for the first time, U.S. buys more from Mexico than China for the first time in 20 years. Um, why is that? Well, there's a few reasons. Um, the U.S. has now, in two successive administrations, begun and carried out a process of decoupling. Now, because the economy of the United States and that of China are so closely intertwined, this is not something that can be done immediately, but it's a slow process. Part of it was the tariffs that Donald Trump put on uh, Chinese goods, 25% tariffs on roughly $300 billion worth of Chinese exports. Those tariffs have remained in place under President Biden. That has surely had an impact, um, although trade does, con does continue. And I think last year it was a record. Uh, so part of it is that that trade has been dampened. The other part is that trade with Mexico has been surging. There's a new agreement, um, NAFTA II, some call it, others call it the USMCA, that's the that's the, the proper name. Uh, and it involves um, enhanced trade between the US and Mexico, as well as Canada. Obviously, proximity is a key factor, uh, with shipping routes now facing all kinds of difficulties through both the, the Suez Canal and the Red Sea and also the Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. um, Mexico just simply has to has to put things on a on the back of a truck or a, or a rail car and they arrive in the U.S. market. Plus, there is the fact that U.S. companies have operations in Mexico, um, as well as Canadian companies, and Mexican companies have, have offices in the U.S. So there's these economies are very closely integrated. I think Canada is the number two trading partner. Um, so um, this, is, this is, is a continuation of a theme. Those two countries have always been in the top, in the top three. Mm -hmm. uh, with China making up the third. So it's simply a question of those positions shifting. Um, I think you're going to continue to see that that shift taking place uh, as supply chains are being reviewed and in many cases revised. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Mexico is a place that is um, competitive and it's actively trying to get itself into supply chains where it has not been before. Um, you may see a lot more of this with respect to the production uh, of electric vehicles. Mm. Um, is it accurate to say that this is also an evidence? You already spoke a little bit about this, but is it accurate to say that this is an evidence of how much global trade uh, patterns have shifted? Well, they are shifting. They are shifting. I don't think they're shifting as radically as as some people have uh, surmised, mm -hmm. but it, they are shifting. Uh, I saw some some polling from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in China. Uh, it said um, that that forty percent of companies were considering uh, decreasing their operations in China. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's no, no one talks about Mexico or Canada in that same way. It's obviously politics that plays a big role in this. Uh, companies have also found that the the uh, the atmosphere for operating in in China has become far less um, hospitable. Uh, there's all kinds of concerns about protection of intellectual property. There's all kinds of concerns about uh, government um, uh, oversight. So people are are very much of the view that. Um, their operations in China should be looked at and scrutinized very closely. Now, the Chinese leadership is aware of this. Uh, Xi Jinping has made an effort to try and um, reassure U.S. businesses that their presence is welcome and that they should continue to invest and indeed increase their investments. But for the moment, this is being uh, viewed with a degree of suspicion. Well, last year, both leaders, Xi Jinping and Biden, for example, they met here in the United States. That was a sign that um, both nations uh, desire uh, for a change. I Well, I think mm -hmm. there was a concern expressed on, on both sides mm -hmm. and by the world at, at large mm -hmm. that these tensions might somehow spiral out of control. Mm -hmm. And I think what... Um, Xi Jinping and President Biden wanted to do was uh, put a floor under these tensions and say, okay, we're going to have trade tensions. There's going to be disagreements about the South China Sea. There's going to be disagreements about a variety of other things, but let's not let this thing get out of hand. Uh, there were a lot of um, uh, tensions with respect to military aircraft Chinese mm -hmm. flights flying close to U.S. Um, Air Force jets. That was a concern, a concern with respect to, to navigation. Um, and these are two, probably the two most powerful countries on earth. And the prospect of some kind of an accident or some kind of a flashpoint um, has made the two sides realize that they need to be, um, at least have channels of communication open. And that's mm -hmm. why now the military... Um, Uh, the military communications link has been reestablished, mm -hmm. which is extremely important. Trade tensions will continue. And if you look at electric vehicles, this is the next real battleground. Um, the Chinese now produce more cars than the U.S. and the European Union put together. Um, so um, that's something that if you look at U.S. policy, it's very much oriented in a direction of trying to reverse that trend or at least stem this trend. Mm get the U.S. Uh, production um, ratcheted up as much as possible.
Hmm. As you mentioned, uh, U.S. policy, what is your analysis of the actual U.S. trade policy and how this actual trade policy uh, from this administration matches or not in comparison with what the U.S. has have been done in the past? Well, I think people have been surprised that the trade policy of the Biden administration is in many ways so similar to that of the Trump administration. Um, it is um, emblematic of the fact that trade is viewed with a great deal of suspicion bordering on hostility in the U.S. across the political spectrum. Uh, the Republican Party, Democrats, particularly those who represent uh, working class areas who have strong union representation, have always had a degree of suspicion with respect to trade. That seems to have heightened. That seems to have gotten um, uh, even more, um, I would say, hostile. So you've got now on both sides of the political aisle, you've got you've got people saying trade is something that they don't like very much. The Biden administration has not signed and will not sign a trade deal during its first term. Now, whether that changes with a second term, we don't know. Um, by uh, Barack Obama's first term was rather light when it came to trade and that changed. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's going to change now. I think you have, on the one hand, um, blue collar workers who have a problem with trade. Um, they believe that jobs have been displaced as a result of competition, mainly from China, but from elsewhere too. But you also have a sort of an ideological uh, aversion to trade uh, and and capitalism in certain parts of of indeed of the administration. So this is a this is a a, a different a different view. Uh, and many of these people who were at the barricades in Seattle are inside this administration, which is quite interesting to see. Um, and so I would say, with respect to trade policy, it's it it's really taking a backseat to industrial policy and environmental policy. And those three policies, in fact, are, are kind of intertwined. And what's very difficult is to try and and carry out your policy objectives in any of those areas without some degree of of coordination and and support from the other policies. Mm -hmm. Could you um could you address more of this topic and try to explain to our listeners uh, how those two complex issues, trade and environment, they are affecting each other? Okay, let's take a look at the at the um, big legislative successes that President Biden recorded in his first two years in office. The infrastructure bill, the chips and uh, science bill, the semiconductor bill, and then the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm. Now, these bills are are worth um, will require spending that goes into the hundreds of billions, even over a trillion dollars. They estimate that that although the Inflation Reduction Act was budgeted at three hundred ninety one billion, Goldman Sachs says it might go to one point two trillion. Now, all of these measures um, are important. And I would argue that that the the Biden administration was correct in pushing this these things through the the market has not addressed the infrastructure shortcomings in the United States. Um, now, I'm sure you've been around the country quite a lot. You've seen um, for a superpower to have the the low quality of bridges, airports, ports, um, telecoms networks. 
if you compare it to where I live, Switzerland, mm -hmm. it's, 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 there's no comparison. The quality here is much higher because the Swiss invest in those areas and the Americans have not. Now, that's being addressed. This, this uh, infrastructure bill is over a trillion dollars in spending. Each of those measures, each of those three bills has got an environmental component. The Infrastructure yeah. Act involves um, a, a major spending to put in place electric vehicle charging stations. Uh, if you look at the at the the um, Inflation Reduction Act, there are huge outlays of federal spending for um, the development of electric cars, for development of alternative forms of energy, um, and they also have elements of social policy because they are designed this particular thing to extend federal subsidies, whether they be direct grants um, or or tax breaks, either for the producers or the consumers, those companies that are paying uh, uh, union wages will be given a better a better chance at those subsidies. Now, hmm. you have these elements. How does trade factor into that? Well, let's just take a look at the fact that with respect to the Infrastructure Act, the Buy America provisions have been enhanced. I think it's I think now you have to have on a federal contract, 70% of the value of product has to come from the U.S., maybe up to 75%. It's been a sliding scale. Um, and that's more than it had been before. On the Inflation Reduction Act, in order to qualify for the subsidies that I mentioned, specifically the $7,500 consumer rebate, the tax break that consumers get for buying electric cars, they only get these for models that were, well, again, it's it's going to be a sliding threshold. By the end of this decade, 100% of the value of those cars has to have been um, assembled, assembled mm -hmm. in the U.S., Canada, or Mexico. It's viewed as a single market, as you know. Now, there's a problem. <laughs> there's a problem with this. Because the most important element of that car, 30 to 40% of the value of the car, is in the electric battery. Mm. And electric batteries require minerals, critical raw materials that you do not find in the U.S. Whether it's copper, whether it's cobalt, whether it's lithium, there is some lithium in the U.S., but not enough at all to meet the demand. So all of these products, manganese, etc., they have to be imported. And when they wrote the act, it's it's a very labyrinthine piece of legislation because in order to qualify for these breaks for, on the battery side, they know they're never going to get 100% U.S. Or, or Canadian or Mexican content. So they say that you can use materials that come from countries with which the United States has a trade agreement. Mm -hmm. There's about 20 or 22 countries that fit into that category. Japan has a very special trading arrangement just for this. And the Europeans very much want one, but up to this point, they've not been, they've not been granted that. So that is, is an, an area in which environment, industrial policy, and of course, the reason for all this domestic content requirement is to try and boost the amount of American manufacturing jobs. Um, whether they can pull off all of these things, the problem is up to this point, only eight models of electric vehicle have been certified as meeting all of these requirements. Mm 
Chinese cars, forget it. They don't meet it. Unless, unless those Chinese cars are going to be made in Mexico. And there's a big, big um, uh, issue coming down the road, which will be how will the United States treat Chinese company cars made in Mexico, which would be made with the U.S., Canadian, Mexican content, if it meets those criteria, would those cars be allowed to be sold in the U.S. market with the same subsidies that would be extended to to the big three uh, U.S. producers, for example? Uh, that's not clear. And, and the Mexicans, of course, would like to have um, uh, uh, investment coming from China in their auto industry. Uh, that's job creating. It's good for the Mexican economy. You can foresee some tensions coming on the, along the lines um, which will be something to keep an eye on. There's there's other examples of this as well. Steel production. You know that the Trump administration basically stopped all imports of steel. I think Brazil, because he was friends with President Bolsonaro, I think Brazil escaped um, the, the heavy sanctions that others faced. Um, and he did this in the name of national security, which has caused all kinds of problems at the World Trade Organization. Uh, the problem now is, is that the, the U.S. and the European Union are continuing to be at loggerheads over this. The U.S. has removed some but not all of the restrictions on, on EU steel. And what they want is they want the EU to, um, it has to be clean steel. Hmm. And it has to be steel that's produced by market economies. And that's designed, of course, to keep Chinese steel out of the market. Um, and you're going to see some some friction coming soon because the U.S. has addressed its environmental issues through this um, in, Inflation Reduction Act. The Europeans have provided also hundreds of billions in subsidies, but they're using another tool, which is called the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, which means a very complex system of measuring your carbon footprint. And if you exceed certain thresholds, you would have to pay, and you export to the European Union, the importer who's taking in your product would have to pay a duty to offset those carbon, um, th those carbon emissions. <coughs> U.S. doesn't like this mm -hmm. because it would affect U.S. producers as well as others. They want to be ex um, exempt from this. EU says, no, if we did that, we would violate WTO rules, which they care about. U.S. is a bit ambivalent about this, but the Europeans care about this. So you're going to see friction coming. That's another trade and environment issue that's going to cause problems. So you've got steel, you've got electric cars, you've got these policy mechanisms which differ. Um, interestingly, some U.S. states have used a system of carbon pricing exactly for this kind of reason. California, Washington State, and there's about a dozen or so eastern states that also use this with respect to power generation. So as, as is typical in the US, the federal nature of the, of the country, not everyone is doing things the same way, but there is no federal uh, provision for this and there's unlikely to be anytime soon. Well, it sounds like we are in a momentum of um, the, um, witnessing this moment where the world is shifting. Um, for the clean energy and all those laws and uh, economic uh, ties that they are changing and being built. Um, taking us to um, this thought, 
and, and looking abroad. Um, last year, you wrote in one of your articles that a trade U.S. policy that swung from hostility to ind indifference has perplexed uh, American allies. Do you believe that this thought still applies one year later yeah. now? Yes, it does. It, def it definitely does. Almost all global leaders, certainly the European leaders, um, Japanese leaders, are happy that Joe Biden is the president. They're mm -hmm. happy that he has signed up to the um, to the UN um, uh, environmental um, process, uh, COP28. Um, they're happy that he is contributing to uh, making a very strong effort to try and meet the targets. And this is critically important for the planet. Um, I saw today that that according to the UN, we've already exceeded the 1.5 degree centigrade um, elevation in temperatures that mm. the that the Paris Agreement was right. designed to to prevent. We've already failed on that front. And that's a great that's a very worrisome development. I think the last eight months have all been record highs for temperatures across the planet so it it's a it's an extremely important thing for us to address and trying to use uh, as many mechanisms as you can to address this is something that i think is a positive thing even if these are even if these things are different and even if there is some friction doing things a different way at least provides people with an idea as to what works and what doesn't work it's a little bit like the way various countries dealt with the pandemic. Everyone did it in a different way. Now, at least we can go back and look and say, okay, what worked and what didn't work? The stakes are very high as they were with the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, but you can begin to see what is working and, and what is not working. The carbon border adjustment mechanism, we'll have to see how that works. But the European companies, producers of, of, of cement, of, of um, hydrogen, of steel, um, are are subject to very strict emissions requirements. And what the Europeans have said is, if we have to adhere to these requirements, so do companies that want to sell in our market. Now, California has been applying a system like this with respect to emissions controls for decades. Um, when the When cars switched to catalytic converters, California said, you want to sell in California, you have to have these commissions control um, mm. this machinery inside your car. Uh, and so everyone, because California is such an important market, everyone in the U.S. did that. That became the standard. And the euros are following a similar logic, and we're going to see how that works. But there's going to be friction. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Let's talk about a topic that is reshaping um, the structure and uh, ties, political ties in the world. We are living in a moment of two wars, uh, Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Hamas, that, as I said, um, has been reshaping international relations. Which analysis do you do on how those wars affect international trade? Well, physically, they've affected trade a great deal because it's a it has resulted in 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 companies having to change their uh, trade routes sea lanes have been affected in a big big way um i think freight rates uh, the rate to ship a 40 foot equivalent container has gone up four times mm -hmm. since 
uh, November uh, to $4,000 per container. Uh, we had a huge degree of difficulty with respect to food because both Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of wheat and barley. Um, they're big exporters as well of, um, of, of other goods that are very important, fertilizer, uh, mm -hmm. very important. Um, I know that Brazil had yes. a big problem because that's where they were importing the fertilizer to run their powerful um, uh, agriculture sector. Yes. So th these are um, this was a was a big, a big problem. Now, we've seen as a result of this some shifts in terms of um, of people's supply chains. The Europeans have essentially done away with importing Russian energy which is quite an amazing thing for them to do, which then gets to another question as a sidebar with respect to trade and environment. One of the ways that they've countered the loss of energy from Russia is to import uh, liquefied natural gas from the U.S. Their, their imports of U.S. LNG have gone up three times, but now the Department of Energy, under pressure from environmentalists, is reviewing its export policy. So you can see environment and trade policy are, are again mm. coming into, into friction. Um, now, if you ask me, have the politics of these wars affected trade? I would say the answer is no. I would say that um, although there are countries that would prefer the United States take a harder line with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and to urge him more forcefully to accept the terms of a of a ceasefire, mm -hmm. I would not say that those countries that are arguing for this have in any way um, um, uh, reduced their trade or economic relationships with the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, um, would would prefer that the president take a harder line with Mr. Netanyahu. Um, but all of those countries are also pushing very hard for a, a renewal and indeed an improvement in the African Growth and Opportunity Act, this important trade agreement that expires next year. So I think countries are very good. Governments are very good at compartmentalizing their relations. Uh, and I don't see too much of I mean, obviously, trade with Russia and the West has has deteriorated. And Russia has has offset that by selling more of its oil and and other natural resources to India and China, um, and that's they seem to have been able to avoid the, the real pain that comes from sanctions by simply shifting the the destination for its exports. Um, but I don't think that in terms of more broadly, if you look beyond Russia uh, and its relations with the G seven. I don't think, or the fact that other countries that are part of the BRICS, for example, I mean, mm. they've continued to have to have good relations with Russia. Yes. So is it accurate to say, according to this thought, that those wars don't affect friends sharing? If does affect. Well, I think what you're looking at very largely here, when you talk about friends sharing and you're talking about concerns, you're talking mostly about two countries. Hmm. You're talking about Russia and you're talking about China. Um, when you look at this whole 
Inflation Reduction Act and where you get um, where you get uh, where, where people will run afoul of the requirements for for gaining these tax benefits. It keeps popping up that the term is I think it's foreign entities of concern. And what that really means for cars, it means China, but it also means Russia, Iran and North Korea. So those are those countries there are um, uh, persona non grata as far as the U.S. government is concerned right now, anyway. But other countries that have that have problems with um, with human rights or uh, difficulties with respect to their neighbors don't face the same kind of scrutiny. Um, Saudi Arabia, India, these countries are viewed more in a more strategic way. And you don't see too many people pushing to to decouple from them. Mm -hmm. You already spoke uh, very briefly at the beginning uh, of our podcast. You mentioned the crisis at the Red Sea and the recent attacks to ships and vessels there. Uh, is it too soon to analyze the effects that this event might uh, have in global trade? Or is it possible to have an analysis? Well, the the World Trade Organization is projecting, had been projecting that global trade would increase this year by 3.3%. It only increased by 0.8% last year, uh, which is way below historical trend. 3.3 is more along the long-term trend line, but they're now saying that they're going to downgrade that forecast. And one of the main reasons for that is the um, the cost and the time and the hassle of having to ship around the Cape of Good Hope um, to get your shipments through. Uh, similar concerns about about the Suez Canal uh, because of the drought conditions there and the fact that the canal has its its water levels are down. I I think around uh, around forty percent. That's leading companies to start using rail to cross the U.S. as opposed to the Suez Canal. Uh, all of these things are less efficient and they will raise trade costs and that will have a dampening effect on trade. So you are seeing forecasts being revised downward. Um, whether or not this continues, I think, depends very much on whether um, how much longer this war in in Gaza goes on. Uh, and it depends as well on whether or not the conflict can be contained and not and not spread i mean we've seen some evidence already that it is spreading um so with the houthis and then there have been some attacks in in uh, in syria and in iraq as you know so if that can be contained and if a lid can be kept on this i think certainly iran and and the us have made very clear they don't want the conflict to spiral out of control i don't think anyone wants that Uh, then the question is, how long will this go on? Um, I think as long as it's going on, it will have a a dampening effect on world trade. Hmm. And finally, as someone who was um, directing directing uh, in charge of the WTO for so many years, could you highlight the main aspects of the upcoming WTO ministerial meeting, which is happening at the end of February, right? That's right. The 26th to the 29th of February. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm afraid that the outlook is not terribly bright. Um, mm -hmm. There will be 
um, two least developed countries who will be joining the organization, Timor-Leste and uh, Comoros, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be two uh, agreements which are um, agreed to by large majorities of the members, but not all members. One, which is a um, agreement, uh, sort of a nuts and bolts agreement on electronic commerce. The other, which is called investment facilitation for development. Those agreements have essentially been negotiated and ministers from the countries that have um, have been part of this uh, are, are trying to um, agree to sign these agreements in Abu Dhabi. Those are the things that that's on the positive side. Agreements in agriculture, which is a huge issue for the Brazilians who have said, look, without an agreement in agriculture of some kind, difficult to see how we can agree to any of these other things. That now looks quite um, difficult. India is insisting that there be an agreement on its public stockholding plan, which are viewed by others as as a form of subsidy for exports. Um, The Indians have argued um, that there was a commitment taken in 2013 that this um, partial agreement that they had struck would be made permanent and would be expanded. And that's true. Um, But things have changed and people are now saying we will not negotiate this stockholding agreement in isolation. It has to be part of a wider part of a wider agreement on agriculture. So that looks not so good. Fishery subsidies, they were to expand this to tackle the issue of overcapacity and uh, overfishing. Mm -hmm. The the stock of global fish is being depleted rapidly, uh, but we're not going to get an agreement on this because... Um, India is insisting that its um, its fishers have uh, be able to be receiving subsidies of an unlimited nature for any fishing they do inside the 200 mile exclusive economic zone. Meanwhile, uh, developed countries would have a prohibition on deep water fishing subsidies for 25 years. Hmm. That will never work. Hmm. I think in some ways, one of the most, at least symbolically, one of the most difficult issues is that um, a moratorium on duties applied to the electronic commerce transmissions that's been in place since 1998. It's been a major reason why digital trade has um, taken off the way that it has. This is this is duty free trade. India, South Africa, Indonesia are set are set to um, to vote against this to 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 uh, block a continuation of this moratorium which would represent the first time that WTO members have agreed to raise tariffs. Um, now, how that would work, a lot of the evidence suggests that putting a duty on an, e- on an e-commerce transmission is self-defeating. Mm-hmm. It will discourage trade. It will especially hurt smaller businesses mm-hmm. and businesses run by women, many of which are the same. Um, many small businesses are run by women. Mm-hmm. So the notion of making trade more inclusive would be undermined by this. But they believe that it's, it, it gives them this, the policy space to extract a new form of revenue and to um, try to boost its domestic industry. Mm. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a very – and businesses around the world are, are complaining. Even in India, they're saying this is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's problematic. And then there's reform of the WTO, particularly with respect to dispute settlement. There is no way the Americans will agree to any reform of the dispute settlement system prior to the uh, to the presidential election. So that's not going to happen. So I think I think if you I hope I'm wrong about this. I I I would I'd be delighted if I was wrong, 
but from what I can see and from what I've heard, um, it, it looks like it's not going very well. Hmm. Just to finalize, as you mentioned, the e-commerce, this is something that affects many countries um, yeah. and uh, general public, not only those who are selling those products products uh, in, in the website, but those who also buy the products. Right. Uh, once new rules are defined among countries, is this, is this um, a one-way without return, do you think, once something new starts to apply in e-commerce, uh, we won't have any way to go back. I, I, I think there is a strong chance that that would in fact be the mm -hmm. case, Patricia, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, the countries that are going to agree to this, to this, these rules for e-commerce, and these are, are basic transition, transactional rules, yes. things like, like um, templates for e-commerce activity, mm -hmm. um, Those countries, most of them, there's 90 of them, maybe 87 of them would agree to continue the moratorium. And my suspicion is many others would as well. And if you look at if you look at the read the number of regional trade agreements inside regional trade agreements, um, there is a commitment not to apply these duties. So many countries won't. Um, India, South Africa, Indonesia are are big players. They're important countries. Uh, it sends a message that um, we're going to roll back um, uh, what we have done up to now, which has been a more free mm -hmm. expression, a, a, a more free system of of um, of expression and of doing business, and make it more costly and and more restrictive. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the new reality. Keith Rockwell, such a privilege um, to listen and learn from you today. Thank you so much for this interview. Patricia, Patricia, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. And I hope to talk to you again. The Foreign Press Podcast spoke today with Kate Rockwell. This episode is produced in partnership with Heinrich Foundation. The AFPC USA is solely responsible for the content of this episode. Have a good day.